welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for everyone everywhere. And as we are blessed with every living moment, let us all make use of every opportunity given us to peer beyond the veil of illusions of this reality and unravel the untruths that we've been taught about our existence, allowing the divine knowledge of our eternal being to unfold the truth of who we really are as children of God, so that we reflect more of that spirit of God within us, thereby increasing the radiance of love and light from our own mighty I Am Presence, uplifting not only ourselves, but lifting all mankind and future generations. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and light. Remember to always do your own research, and y'all be loved. The magic of the Egyptians was of two kinds, one, that which was employed for legitimate purposes and with the idea of benefiting either the living or the dead, and, two, that which was made use of in the furtherance of nefarious plots and schemes and was intended to bring calamities upon those against whom it was directed. In the religious texts and works we see how magic is made to be the handmaiden of religion, and how it appears in certain passages side by side with the most exalted spiritual conceptions, and there can be no doubt that the chief object of magical books and ceremonies was to benefit those who had by some means attained sufficient knowledge to make use of them. But the Egyptians were unfortunate enough not to be understood by many of the strangers who found their way into their country, and as a result wrong and exaggerated ideas of their religion were circulated among the surrounding nations, and the magical ceremonies which were performed at their funerals were represented by the ignorant either as silly acts of superstition or as tricks of the black art. But whereas the magic of every other nation of the ancient East was directed entirely against the powers of darkness, and was invented in order to frustrate their fell designs by invoking a class of benevolent beings to their aid, the Egyptians aimed being able to command their gods to work for them, and to compel them to appear at their desire. These great results were to be obtained by the use of certain words which, to be efficacious, must be uttered in a proper tone of voice by a duly qualified man. Such words might be written upon some substance, papyrus, precious stones, and the like, and worn on the person, when their effect could be transmitted to any distance. As almost every man, woman, and child in Egypt who could afford it wore some such charm or talisman, it is not to be wondered at that the Egyptians were at a very early period regarded as a nation of magicians and sorcerers. Hebrew, and Greek, and Roman writers referred to them as experts in the occult sciences, and as the possessors of powers which could, according to circumstances, be employed to do either good or harm to man. From the Hebrews we receive, Incidentally, it is true, considerable information about the powers of the Egyptian magician. Saint Stephen boasts that the great legislator Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and declares that he was mighty in words and in deeds, and there are numerous features in the life of this remarkable man which show that he was acquainted with many of the practices of Egyptian magic. The phrase mighty in words probably means that, like the goddess Isis, he was strong of tongue and uttered the words of power which he knew with correct pronunciation, and halted not in his speech, and was perfect both in giving the command and in saying the word. 
the turning of a serpent into what is apparently an inanimate, wooden stick, and the turning of the stick back into a writhing snake, are feats which have been performed in the East from the most ancient period, and the power to control and direct the movements of such venomous reptiles was one of the things of which the Egyptian was most proud, and in which he was most skillful, already in the time when the pyramids were being built. But this was by no means the only proof which Moses gives that he was versed in the magic of the Egyptians, for, like the sage Abba Aner and King Nectanebus, and all the other magicians of Egypt from time immemorial, he and Aaron possessed a wonderful rod by means of which they worked their wonders. At the word of Moses Aaron lifted up his rod and smote the waters and they became blood, he stretched it out over the waters and frogs innumerable appeared, when the dust was smitten by the rod it became lice, and so on. Moses sprinkled ashes toward heaven, and it became boils and blains upon man and beast, he stretched out his rod, and there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, very grievous, and the flax and the barley was smitten, he stretched out his rod, and the locusts came, and after them the darkness. Now Moses did all these things, and brought about the death of the firstborn among the Egyptians by the command of his God, and by means of the words which he told him to speak. But although we are told by the Hebrew writer that the Egyptian magicians could not imitate all the miracles of Moses, it is quite certain that every Egyptian magician believed that he could perform things equally marvelous by merely uttering the name of one of his gods, or through the words of power which he had learned to recite, and there are many instances on record of Egyptian magicians utterly destroying their enemies by the recital of a few words possessed of magical power, and, by the performance of some, apparently, simple ceremony. But one great distinction must be made between the magic of Moses and that of the Egyptians among whom he lived, the former was wrought by the command of the God of the Hebrews, but the latter by the gods of Egypt at the command of man. Later on in the history of Moses' dealings with the Egyptians we find the account of how he stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand, and on their left. When the Egyptians had come between the two walls of water, by God's command Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength, and the waters returned, and covered the chariots, and the horsemen, and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. But the command of the waters of the sea or river was claimed by the Egyptian magician long before the time of Moses, as we may see from an interesting story preserved in the Westcar Papyrus. This document was written in the early part of the 18th dynasty, about BC 1550 but it is clear that the stories in it date from the early empire, and are in fact as old as the Great Pyramid. Egyptian Magic, Antiquity of Magical Practices in Egypt Isis Unveiled, Chapter 12 Speaking of pictures, the one described by Huck as hanging in a certain lamasery may fairly be regarded as one of the most wonderful in existence. It is a simple canvas without the slightest mechanical apparatus attached, as the visitor may prove by examining it at his leisure. It represents a moonlit landscape, but the moon is not at all motionless and dead, quite the reverse, for, according to the Abbe, one would say that our moon herself, or at least her living double, lighted the picture. Each phase, each aspect, each movement of our satellite, is repeated in her facsimile, in the movement and progress of the moon in the sacred picture. You see this planet in the painting ride as a crescent, or full, shine brightly, 
pass behind the clouds, peep out or set, in a manner corresponding in the most extraordinary way with real luminary. It is, in a word, a most servile and resplendent reproduction of the pale queen of the night, which received the adoration of so many people in the days of old. When we think of the astonishment that would inevitably be felt by one of our self-complacent academicians at seeing such a picture, and it is by no means the only one, for they have them in other parts of Tibet and Japan also, which represent the sun's movements, when we think, we say, of his embarrassment at knowing that if he ventured to tell the unvarnished truth to his colleagues, his fate would probably be like that of poor Huck, and he flung out of the academical chair as a liar or a lunatic, we cannot help recalling the anecdote of Tycho Brahe, given by Humboldt in his cosmos. One evening, says the great Danish astronomer, as, according to my usual habit, I was considering the celestial vault, to my indescribable amazement, I saw, close to the zenith, in Cassiopeia, a radiant star of extraordinary size. Struck with astonishment, I knew not whether I could believe my own eyes. Some time after that, I learned that in Germany, Cartman and other persons of the lower classes had repeatedly warned the scientists that a great apparition could be seen in the sky, which fact afforded both the press and public one more opportunity to indulge in their usual raillery against the men of science, who, in the cases of several antecedent comets, had not predicted their appearance. H.P. Blavatsky From the days of the earliest antiquity, the Brahmins were known to be possessed of wonderful knowledge in every kind of magic arts. From Pythagoras, the first philosopher who studied wisdom with the gymnosophists, and Plotinus, who was initiated into the mystery of uniting oneself with the deity through abstract contemplation, down to the modern adepts, it was well known that in the land of the Brahmins and Gotama Buddha the sources of hidden wisdom are to be sought after. It is for future ages to discover this grand truth, and accept it as such, whereas now it is degraded as a low superstition. What did anyone, even the greatest scientists, know of India, Tibet, and China, until the last quarter of this century? That most untiring scholar, Max Muller, tells us that before then not a single original document of the Buddhist religion had been accessible to European philologists, that 50 years ago there was not a single scholar who could have translated a line of the Veda, a line of the Zendavesta, or a line of the Buddhist Tripitaka, let alone other dialects or languages. And even now, that science is in possession of various sacred texts, what they have are but very incomplete editions of these works, and nothing, positively nothing of the secret sacred literature of Buddhism. And the little that our Sanskrit scholars have got hold of, and which at first was termed by Max Muller a dreary jungle of religious literature, the most excellent hiding place for Lamas and Dalai Lamas, is now beginning to shed a faint light on the primitive darkness. We find this scholar stating that that which appeared at the first glance into the labyrinth of the religions of the world, all darkness, self-deceit, and vanity begin to assume another form. It sounds, he writes, like a degradation of the very nature of religion, to apply it to the wild ravings of Hindu yogins, and the blank blasphemies of Chinese Buddhists, but, as we slowly and patiently wend our way through the dreary prisons, our own eyes seem to expand, and we perceive a glimmer of light, where all was darkness at first. H.P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 13 
I do urge all of you that are doing work that requires your bending forward, to stop three or four or five times during the day for two or three minutes, and lie across the bed or some place where you reverse the position of the spine. Oh you would get such relief and keep from getting into that spine tension, because I tell you, when you are typing or writing or playing where your head must necessarily lean forward, you in years past when you were doing other work outside, you did not continue these things long enough to get the pressure, but where you work for hours in almost one position, it almost locks the spine and the flow or the nerve energy, and that is the reason you find this tension. Many times by putting a pillow under the shoulders and just letting go and relaxing, and let yourself relax over that, sometimes it relaxes the whole system and lets the currents of the energy flow. Then there is no tension or distress, but when you get under the pressure of work, many times you do not feel you have time to do it. Question, wouldn't it help to let the head hang over the edge of the bed? Saint Germain, yes, but that is not quite the point. It is between the shoulders where they need the relaxation more than the back. That is why I suggest a pillow or something that is soft that doesn't make a hard spot, something soft between the shoulders, because that is the place where the relaxation is needed. All people more or less lean forward in the natural activity, because most people droop in the shoulders if they do not watch themselves. You will note the messengers stand for hours in almost an immovable position. Well, there are few people who can do that, but that is because they stand absolutely straight with the spine and all the nerves flowing in equal balance. The audience marvels and marvels how they can stand almost three hours in one position. That is the reason, because it is the natural current of energy causing them to stand straight. It is a very wonderful thing. You don't have any sense of exhaustion, you could not have. When people do not realize these things, the natural tendency of the human is to drop into a position where they seem to be most comfortable, yet by habit, they come into a position where they are most uncomfortable. Oh there are so many little things that are so helpful and vital, but people do not do them because they let the pressure of the moment make them feel they haven't time to do it, yet if they would take the time, it would make everything else so much easier. Beloved Saint Germain Question, this light you spoke of, is it similar to that garment of light substance from the secret love star? Saint Germain, that is more for clothing. But this liquid light is a substance that enters right in, similar to what you would use in drinking a precipitated liquid, although that is still more powerful. I will never forget the first precipitated liquid that Mr. Livingston drank at Mr. Rayburn's home at the mine. His hair almost stood up. While it is a most peculiar sensation, I am frank to say, the first time you take a precipitated liquid into the system there is no describing it. You just cannot describe it, because it goes right through the system like liquid fire. And of course, you know how quickly the blood circulates through the body, then you can know the speed this goes through the body. It is almost like an electrical force, but it is just an indescribable thing and the effect is something marvelous. When I first discovered this, and that I could produce it, I almost hesitated to try it. But I tried it out on myself first, and I thought, if I survive, somebody else might. I shall never forget the sensation. I certainly gasped, but I just waited for the results, and they turned out to be very marvelous. Mr. Ballard, was that what was coming into my hand? St. Germain, yes. Mr. Ballard, had I continued that, would it have come forth? St. Germain, yes, but the need of the other work was paramount at the time, and was the reason you did not continue it. Mr. Ballard, should I try it again? St. Germain, well, just follow the inner promptings, but I would not urge it just now, 
until we get more of this protective work accomplished. All of these other things will follow after enough of this is done, so the protection is assured. Question, shall I keep giving the decrees powerfully in the contemplation groups like I did in Oakland? St. Germain, oh I think so. It is magnificent. If you saw from our standpoint what is accomplished in those groups, it is tremendous. I mean not only for them individually, but for the release of the power that we can use. I tell you, they get into a powerful sincerity, and you have observed, of course, that it always comes into the exact same power and energy in every contemplation group. There is hardly any exception, because you are able to call it forth. I tell you it is a service that is tremendous, not only for America, but for the things that it is doing for them individually, because when they get into that vibratory action, they take hold and make clear application, where they won't do it most of the time for themselves. They get into that great, firm determination, and it is marvelous. Beloved Saint Germain. Thank you.